there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dandenong Post Office, Alice speaking. I need you to take a message to the man outside. Pardon? Sir, there isn't a man out... Oh goodness, there is. Who is this? Could I have your name? It's very important you tell him. We won't be long. Tell him now. What on earth? Sir? Good morning. This is rather odd, I know, but I've got a message for you. They won't be long? Oh, Lord. Thank you. I hope they wouldn't be. Thank you. Alice! You can't just run out like that. Who is that man? I... well, I'm not certain. But it's the strangest thing. He looks just like the man whose children were taken. What's their name again? The Beaumont children had been missing for over two years when in 1968, their parents got a letter from their eldest daughter, Jane, postmarked February 21st. Jane, along with her younger siblings, Arna and Grant, had been presumed kidnapped from Glenelg Beach near Adelaide, Australia on January 26, 1966. Jane would be 12 by now, and the letter, addressed to her parents, Jim and Nancy, was the first tangible proof they had that their kids were still alive and in the care of someone known only as the man. And the note promised their return, provided they followed a few simple rules. She says, You, Dad, have to wear a dark coat and white pants so that the man will know you. The man told me to tell you that the police must not know at all. He said that if you do tell them, you may as well not come. So please do not tell them. The Dandenong Post Office is in Victoria, in case you did not know. We are all looking forward to seeing you next Monday. Please do not tell the police. We've got to call the police. It was a risky move to contradict the man's wishes, but it's understandable. The Beaumonts had relied heavily on local police over the past two years. It's fair to say the police were just as invested in solving the disappearance. Especially Detective Sergeant Stan Swain, who immediately visited the Beaumonts to check out the letter for himself. Dandenong, eh? Quite a trip. She said to meet at 8.50 in the morning on Monday the 26th in front of the Dandenong Post Office. That's in two days. If we were to drive... Hold on, Nancy. Stan, I hate to say this, but is this letter really from Jane? Jim, don't do this. Nance, I want it to be. But the handwriting's not very much like hers. It's close enough, and it's been two years. Maybe she's been writing differently. Or maybe she hasn't had a chance to write much, or... What about Arna's name? It's misspelled. Jane knows there are two N's in it. I don't care. We have to go. Jim... You have every right to be suspicious, but this, this is a chance. A chance you might not get again if you don't act now. Then we're off to Dandenong. God help us all.
This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the Beaumont children, three innocent children who disappeared off the Australian coast in 1966 and whose whereabouts have been the subject of decades of investigation. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. The Beaumonts and Detective Swain hatched a plan. They would make the eight-hour drive nearly 500 miles to Dandenong, a suburb of Melbourne in the state of Victoria. Jim, Nancy, Stan Swain, an associate of Swain's named Bill Cotton, left at 5 a.m. on Sunday, February 25th. They checked in the Commodore Motel in Dandenong under the name Ellis. This was all done with the utmost secrecy, and Swain didn't alert the Victoria police. He hoped to keep outside involvement at a minimum, since his presence already broke the man's rules. Oh, how much further have we got? <laughs> Sorry. You, you sound like Arna on one of our drives. Maybe she'll ask it on our way home. <sighs> Dear, I don't want you to get your hopes up. There's nothing you can say that'll stop me from hoping. After two years, I'd hope you know that. I do, and I love you for it, but I... What's wrong? Nothing. It's just... That same car's been behind us for a while. Jim Beaumont wasn't being paranoid. A car was following him. Two cars, in fact. Both crammed with reporters after someone tipped off the Adelaide News about the Beaumont's journey to Dandenong. One of Stan Swain's men? Perhaps Stan himself. We don't know, but Swain being the leaker wouldn't make sense. Swain was fiercely, almost pathologically dedicated to the Beaumont case and wouldn't endanger it so foolishly. He understood the risks. Still somehow, a lot of people did know, and it turned the rescue mission into the worst-kept secret. Proof that even though this took place before the age of social media and the 24-hour news cycle, good gossip always travels fast. And Stan Swain couldn't have known that the mere act of checking into a hotel would trigger another wave of people finding out about Jim and Nancy's trip. Hello there. I'd like a room for the night. Possibly several, but I won't know yet until tomorrow. Hmm. I haven't seen you around these parts, Mr. Swain. (laughs) Passing through, are we? Uh, Yes, uh, that's why I'm looking for a room. Hmm. Are you here for business or pleasure? Business. Just one moment. Operator, get me the Dandenong police. He called the cops on a cop. The clerk didn't know Swain was an officer because he was semi-undercover. I say semi because he made the odd choice of using his own name. But there was a crime wave in Dandenong at the time where several safes were robbed. And a stranger like Swain, who may have been a bit too vague in his effort to go unnoticed, would raise suspicions. So the clerk wasn't being too paranoid. The local police thought so too, especially when their research revealed Swain was a detective sergeant from Adelaide. Melbourne Herald, Douglas Steele speaking. Yes, hello, Mr. Steele. I'm an officer with the Dandenong police. Got a hot tip? Yes, well, no. Well, I'm not sure. I received a report from a concerned citizen that a detective sergeant from all the way in Adelaide checked into a local pub for the night. Stan Swain is his name. Ring any bells? Hang on. Swain. That's the man who's been on the Beaumont case. What do you suspect he's doing here? I haven't the faintest clue. Yet. Well, at least I know he's on our side. Mr. Steele, thank you. No, officer. Thank you. All right, boys, drop everything, because I've got something. Only Jim, Nancy, and the man were supposed to have known about the Denanong trip. But in a matter of 24 hours, the circle of secrecy expanded to include Stan Swain, Bill Cotton, at least two cars full of Adelaide reporters, plus a local hotel clerk at the Dandenong police, and reporters like Douglas Steele at the Melbourne Herald. 
nearly all of whom gathered incognito by the Dandenong Post Office at 9 a.m. on Monday, February 26th, to witness the next chapter in the case of the missing Beaumont children. Soon, a postal worker named Alice Parker was caught in the web of confusion when the kidnapper, known as the man, called the post office to deliver a message to Jim. They wouldn't be long. It must have been an odd sight for Swain to see as he discreetly idled nearby. Jim! No, 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 don't look at me. Just tell me who that woman was. I have no idea. But she said they wouldn't be long. As Jim, Swain, and far too many other people in the know waited around, the Dendenong post office daily routine was once again shaken up by the man. Boy, these telegrams won't be delivering themselves. But I've just been given a message for the man outside. First Alice, now you. What the hell is going on today? Jim, what was it this time? A telegram, boy. Is there anyone in this damn town who doesn't know? I mean, where are my children? Is this just a game to him? Jim, quiet. Don't let them rattle you. What did the boy say? He said Gran is sick and that they'd be coming after lunch. And he also said to wait across the street. Are you willing to do that? What choice do I have? If you speak to Nancy, don't tell her the bit about Grant. She's already barely holding it together. Hell, I'm a wreck myself. Wait it out. And Jim waited nearly the whole day, until 3 p.m., when he finally gave up. For all the morning's excitement, there was no sign of the children. As Jim, Nancy, and Swain regrouped at a local pub, they finally became aware of how public their secret mission had gotten. I just don't understand. We did everything he said. And the man called all those people at the post office. Stan, could he have been at a payphone nearby? I patrolled the whole block. No sight of anything out of the ordinary. Well, except for Jim and myself. I just can't stop imagining. What if they were sitting in a parked car right nearby all day while this man toyed with us? They weren't there, Nancy! I'm sorry, love. It's just been a long day. Excuse me. Yes? Can I help you? I was actually wondering if Jim and Nancy could help me. Jim, Nancy, do you think the man ever intended to give your children back? Or was the whole hubbub at the post office today a sad hoax? Oh my god. How dare you? Who are you? I'm from the Adelaide News, and you're on the record. Get out of here! No, he's already out. You should be grateful I'm trying to help get your story out. You should be grateful I'm letting you walk away instead of limp away. I wonder if he was the one following us in the car. How many people know about this, Swain? What if the man knows there were other people involved? What if that's the reason he kept delaying? Oh, maybe it's all been ruined. Nancy, we don't know that. But I'm very sorry for all of this. I had no idea. I'll go back tomorrow. I'll keep waiting for as long as it takes. And Jim did wait outside the post office on Tuesday, February 27th, and Wednesday, February 28th. But it was all in vain. The man never showed, and Jane, Arna, and Grant were never returned to their parents. The Beaumont parents returned home, frustrated by the media intrusion and no closer to getting their children back. What they soon got, however, were more letters. One from the man himself, and two in handwriting, similar to Jane's all stating the same point. The children were fine, but Jim and Nancy's insistence on involving the police cost them the chance to see Jane, Arna, and Grant again. Dear Mom and Dad, we had a really beautiful lunch today. We had some turkey and a lot of vegetables. They tasted really nice. The man is feeding us really well. The man took us to see Sound of Music yesterday Little Grant fell asleep in it, though. He could not understand it. The man was very disappointed that you brought all those policemen with you. He knew all the time that they were there. He says that that is why he sent the message, to go across the street so that it would disturb the positions of the policemen. The man said that I better stop now, so I will. Grant and Arna send you their love. Oh, Jim, I told you the man knew about everything. What if we had gone alone? I don't know what to say, Nancy. 
We did the best we could. It would be the last they'd hear from the man or their children. Imagine the guilt piling on after two years of fruitless searching. The nagging thought that if they'd stuck to the mystery man's wishes, they might have gotten their children back. But Jim and Nancy wouldn't know for sure until almost 24 years later. In the 1960s, forensic technology was in its early stages and nowhere near as advanced as it is today. But by 1991, the evolution of forensics meant that a whole host of cold cases could be reopened, like the Beaumont case. Now, the letters from Jane and the man were the only piece of hard evidence the police had to go on. And forensic analysis back in 1968 revealed no conclusive results. But when the letters were tested in 1991, they revealed a positive match for fingerprints and handwriting style belonging to a man in Melbourne, which, you'll recall, is quite close to Dandenong. Detective Senior Sergeant Trevor Crouch questioned the man. Sir... Where were you on February 28th, 1968? I... I can explain. It's been so long. How old are you, sir? 41. Which would have made you how old in 1968? 17. I was only 17. You hold a lot of kitties for ransom? When you were barely out of diapers, sir? I... I didn't mean... It was only a joke. I... I didn't think... (laughs) I didn't think. It was a hoax, a mean-spirited, immature prank. The public nature of the case and of Jim and Nancy's personal lives and home address was probably what made that possible for the young man whose identity remains undisclosed. It's hard to understand why anyone, even a teenage boy, wouldn't realize how damaging this would be to the Beaumonts. But upon concluding their investigation, the head of the Major Crimes Task Force, Jim Litster, cleared the man of any connection to the kidnapping. We are able to confirm the letters were, in fact, written by the male person. They were a hoax and were in no way connected with the disappearance of the three children. I understand the person involved is extremely remorseful, and it would seem that an act he has carried out as an immature young person has come back to haunt him. Owing to the limitation of time statutes, no charges will be preferred. Stan Swain, who was in his mid-sixties at the time, and still harbored a close connection to the case, sadly summed up the situation in a public statement. Thank God it's been cleared up. We're back to square one. It's inspiring to know Swain was still on the case 20 years later, but there's a fine line between tenacity and obsession, and Stanley Swain would toe that line six years later in 1997 with a bombshell announcement. He had found Jane Beaumont, but more on that later. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. As the 1970s rolled by, Australia found itself overcome by a frightening wave of child abductions and murders, almost as if the Beaumont case had opened a Pandora's box of evil on the nation's children. Suspects were nearly always linked to the unsolvable Beaumont case. And the one most frequently discussed in tandem is the 1973 Oval Abduction. It happened at the Adelaide Oval, a stadium not too far from Glenelg Beach, in the middle of a football match between the North Adelaide and Norwood teams. In attendance were the Ratcliffe family and their 11-year-old daughter, Joanne. Joanne took an immediate motherly liking to four-year-old Kirsty Gordon, who was there with her grandmother, a friend of the Ratcliffe's. Well, Joanne volunteered to take Kirsty to the bathroom around 3.45, but they weren't back 20 minutes later. Their family searched the entire stadium, but, well, by now, I'm sure this sounds like the beginning of a very familiar tale. Four eyewitnesses saw Joanne and Kirsty with an adult male in the 90 minutes after they left their families. In three of these sightings, Joanne was visibly distressed as she followed the man who carried four-year-old Kirsty. And each witness's description of the man bore a striking similarity to the mystery man who was seen with Jane, Arna, and Grant. We know Peter Von Zarr's 1966 police sketch for the Beaumont's Mystery Man was possibly inaccurate since it was produced under pressure and the influence of alcohol, but it still does resemble the 1973 Oval Abduction sketch. And even if it didn't, the witnesses' verbal descriptions do. Both groups of children were taken from crowded public places in the general Adelaide area within a seven-year window 
and never found. Both cases have taken on mythic status in Australia, and though no suspect has ever been formally charged in either case, a common public consensus is that the same person must have committed these crimes. We found a few key Australian psychopaths, each responsible for a bloody cornucopia of child murders that deserve a much longer dissection. In the interest of timing, we'll only briefly delve into their killer careers. The question we're asking here is, mystery man or not our man? First up is Arthur Stanley Brown, a child molester charged with the 1970 abduction and murder of two sisters, five-year-old Judith and seven-year-old Susan McKay in the Australian state of Queensland. Like the Beaumonts, Judith and Susan were headed to a bus stop on their own. Though in this case, it was a school bus. Unlike the Beaumonts, they never got on the bus. Judith and Susan were found a few days later, dead in the woods. Brown was also linked to several other child murders in the region over the years, though never formally charged. Authorities first drew a link between Brown and the Beaumonts when it was remarked that he bore a resemblance to the described mystery man in the Beaumont and Oval cases. With his predilection for molesting and murdering youngsters, it would seem like a horrifyingly perfect fit, except Brown was based in Queensland, the northeast Australian state, quite a ways away from Adelaide. There was no formal record of Brown ever visiting Adelaide or any other part of South Australia. However, Sue Laurie, a witness from the Oval abduction, who was 14 at the time, recalls that the man with Joanne and Kirsty was in a peculiar outfit she described as very Queensland County. Still, a teenager's opinion on fashion wasn't enough to tie Brown to the Oval abduction. And even if it did, it still doesn't place him in Adelaide or Glenelg in 1966 when the Beaumonts disappeared. So, mystery man or not our man? Not enough evidence to convict. Next. Derek Ernest Percy, who earned his place in the Pantheon of Psychopaths with the July 1969 murder of 12-year-old Yvonne Tui, who was out for a walk with a friend. 21-year-old Percy put a knife to Yvonne's throat and abducted her. Yvonne's traumatized friend was able to inform to the police who tracked down Percy's residence, a naval ship. Shockingly, they learned that he was a naval officer on weekend leave. Within three hours, they caught him red-handed. Quite literally, he was washing Yvonne's blood from his clothes. Percy was deemed criminally insane and sentenced to prison in 1970. There, incredibly, he was described as a model citizen and fitness enthusiast who excelled at chess and tennis and grew his impressive stamp collection. One source within the prison later described Percy as Australia's own Hannibal Lecter, intelligent, cunning, and pure evil. It sounds like he could have pulled off the Beaumont kidnapping, especially since there was evidence that Percy was in the Adelaide area in 1966. However, there are a few hiccups that make him an unlikely suspect. First off, he was already in police custody in 1973, at the time of the Oval abduction. Well, that supposes that the Oval and Beaumont kidnappings were committed by the same criminal, which isn't necessarily true. But there are other issues here, too. Percy would have been 17 at the time of the Beaumont abduction, which puts him at least a decade under the age description of the mystery man. Also, the driving age in Australia is 18. Police thought that whoever took Jane, Arna, and Grant would have had to have had access to a car to evade being caught. It's unlikely Percy would have had a car or a license in 1966. So, our verdict? Not our man. Let's meet James Ryan O'Neill instead. Why do all these murders have three-part names? Ooh, another chilling coincidence. O'Neill was born in the late 1940s under the name Lee Anthony Bridgert in Melbourne. Well-educated and initially set for a career in real estate, he ended up as a traveling arms dealer instead. In 1969, Bridget was accidentally shot in the head by a colleague. Though he survived and recovered, the injury destroyed most of his sense of taste and smell. Prior to his brain injury, Bridget had never displayed sociopathic or psychotic tendencies, but in 1971, he was charged with several abductions and assaults of young boys. Bridget skipped bail, relocated to the isolated island of Tasmania, and changed his name to James Ryan O'Neill. He soon married and was even expecting a child with his wife when the monster within him took over again. 
In February 1975, O'Neill was driving to the hospital to meet his newborn child when he decided to take a break to abduct and murder nine-year-old Ricky John Smith. He dumped the body in remote bushland and headed back to meet his baby. O'Neill even helped with the search effort when Ricky was presumed missing. Later, he fulfilled his even darker desires when he abducted and killed nine-year-old Bruce Wilson. But this time, he was caught. Interestingly, at his trial, O'Neill's lawyer suggested that his behavior was a result of the brain injury he received years earlier. Since victims of brain damage can sometimes experience personality shifts, the brain injury was used as the basis for an insanity plea. O'Neill was sentenced to life in prison and is currently the longest-serving prisoner in Tasmania. His case attracted the attention of Janine Widgery, a journalist making a documentary about Australia's unsolved child murders. In 1998, Janine met with O'Neill in prison, where she and her film crew deemed him to be one of the most likable people they had ever met. The Beaumont's mystery man had to have exerted some pull over the children, so O'Neill's charm would have likely made him incredibly appealing to innocent children, and his travel patterns make it likely that he could have been in Glenelg in 1966. But here's the thing. He would have only been 19 at the time. In addition to that, O'Neill's victims were all young boys. While it's possible he was after Grant Beaumont and only took Jane and Arna along out of necessity, it seems like it would be a lot of trouble to take on two additional children. So, our verdict is not our man. Which brings us to Bevan von Einem, perhaps the most chilling suspect on the list. Though, unlike the others, von Einem first received attention for a heroic act. In 1972, he rescued a man crawling on the side of the road. The man had just been attacked for being gay. And his attackers were three undercover senior members of the South Australia's police vice squad, who put the brute in police brutality. Von Einem was gay himself, and at a time when being gay was illegal in South Australia, this was certainly a brave act. Ironically, Bevan Von Einem was arrested in 1983 for kidnapping and torturing 16-year-old Richard Kelvin for five weeks. Kelvin was found in the fetal position, his cause of death likely being massive blood loss from an anal injury. Von Einem enjoyed drugging and raping his victims, but what's really sickening was his predilection for amateur genital surgery. He was rumored to be behind the family murders, a wave of murders centered on teenage boys that swept Adelaide in the late 70s and early 80s. Rumor had it that a group of influential Adelaide men, nicknamed The Family, drugged, raped, and sometimes murdered young teenage boys. It's unclear who any family members were, but Von Einem was seen as the key to reaching them. When Bevan was later charged with two more family murders, a witness known as Mr. B testified in 1989. Though Mr. B actually took part in the rape of several young male hitchhikers with Von Einem, he found the murders to be one step too far. In his testimony, Mr. B mentioned a revealing conversation with Von Einem. One where Von Einem implied he had taken two children from the Oval, referring, of course, to the girls taken in the Oval abduction. Which is chilling enough on its own, but then Mr. B stated that Bevan Von Einem claimed he also took the Beaumont children and surgically connected them, making these close siblings literally inseparable. It is horrifying details like those that made Von Einem's trial a media sensation. But no real proof came from Mr. B's testimony. And it's possible that Von Einem's claims were an act of posturing by a deranged killer. Also, Von Einem would have only been 21 in 1966. Though, photos of him from his young adulthood do show a man who looks slightly older than his age. And his confirmed victims were all teenage boys, not grade school girls and a boy who was practically still a toddler. So as much as Bevan Von Einem is a memorable murderer, we still can't say he's our mystery man. Still, the much-publicized trial prompted another media assault on Jim and Nancy Beaumont. Their statements show a couple that's older and more jaded, who may have grown to see the value in keeping the painful past in the past. I go to a pub and see people staring at me, and you know they're talking about you. Some idiots with three or four drinks in them come over and say, you're the father of the missing kids. I don't want that. I just want to be left alone. I know as much now as I did then. I've never heard of anyone coming back from the dead. 
so maybe we'll never know. If Nancy Beaumont's wish in 1989 was to keep the past buried, she'd get her wish for a few more years until an unlikely face from the past would resurface to dig everything right back up again. Mr. Quasset. Please call me the Great Quasset. Um. <laughs> a joke. Please call me Gerard. Gerard. You've achieved notoriety over the decades, but I have to say your career includes a lot of misses along with the hits, including... The Beaumont children. How... Yes, that's what I was going to say. Another hit? I'm aware that the children weren't found in the excavation of the warehouse that I urged them to investigate, but open your mind to this. Perhaps they weren't digging in the right place. You're saying that... Even 11 years later, you still think the Beaumont children are really buried there? Why, it's like you read my mind. Celebrity psychic Gerard Coisset famously bungled his prediction about the Beaumont children's location. His 1966 visit to Glenelg, a media frenzy that came at a high cost to locals, centered around digging up a local brick factory's warehouse where the Beaumonts used to play. No bodies were found, and even before the dig was complete, Quasset was long gone from Australia. But when asked about it 11 years later in 1977, Quasset still maintained the children were buried there. He went to his death in 1980 believing that. And he wasn't the only one. Con Polites, the wealthy local real estate tycoon who had paid for half the cost of Quasset's KLM ticket to Australia, believed him too. Though Polite's enthusiasm for the Beaumont case didn't extend to him putting serious money or manpower behind the case on a consistent basis, he re-emerged 30 years later in 1996 with a startling announcement. He was going to re-excavate that warehouse once and for all. Well, this was right around Australia Day, which means it was almost exactly 30 years since Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont disappeared on Australia Day 1966. It feels like a conveniently timed PR move, but from all evidence, it seems Polites was genuine in his motives. Though Polites had a long-time fascination with the case, his decision came from a new piece of information. John Shouten, the warehouse manager in 1966, came forward in 1995 with the opinion that he felt the wrong area had been dug up. Upon hearing this, Polites hired a private investigator named Frank Church to seek out the Beaumont children's former playmates, who are now adults in their 40s. He wanted to find out more about where the children and their friends played back in 1966. Thank you again for meeting. I know you haven't got much time, but I'm a little confused. The brickworker's old manager said they dug up the wrong place, but we're not sure what that means. You know, I'm almost 40 now. So I can't be sure I remember it all fully. But I think what he means is the tunnels. The tunnels? We played in the main pit, but there used to be some kind of uh, machinery in the pit. Uh, there were tunnels that fanned out from it. I guess maybe the brick workers used to use them to access the machine controls. I suppose you kids loved scampering about there in the dark. <laughs> we did. Do you really think they'll find them after all these years? I don't think Mr. Polites will rest until every inch of that place is dug up. The warehouse's current owner, Grant Walter, agreed to a new dig, provided business wasn't disrupted too much. Walter's wishes could have come true, as rumor had it that Polites was going to use a ground-penetrating radar to find the bodies, possibly without digging at all. He figured the Australian Army owned one, but if not, he confidently assured the public that he'd foot the bill for importing one. It was Con Polites' acquaintances at Scotland Yard who later convinced him to back off from his radar plan. Any human remains would have deteriorated too greatly over 30 years to be detected by radar. As for the South Australia police, they stayed out of his way, but did point out that they did not have any reason to conduct a new search of the warehouse. So without fancy tech or police support, Con Polites rolled up his sleeves. Or more likely hired an expert crew of construction workers to roll up theirs and dug. By April 30th of 1996, 15 holes were dug into different parts of the space, followed by more drilling the next day. 
A forensic geologist named Geraldine Hodgson analyzed the samples, which included varieties of concrete, sand, and gravel. Hodgson calculated her results over two weeks while Pilates tried to stay patient. The chance to literally crack a 30-year-old cold case and prove the great Quasse right must have been tantalizing to this impulsive philanthropist. I can imagine that Stan Swain, wherever he was, also kept a wary eye out for any new developments. Would someone crack this case before he did? It might seem odd that Jim and Nancy didn't even make a cursory statement to the press, but it's a sad fact of the case that the Beaumonts had given up hope for finding their children long before the rest of the country had. Well, not that we can blame them. With decades of disappointment behind them, they just wanted to lead normal lives. Lives that could have changed when Pilates finally announced the results. No organic evidence of human remains was found in recent drill samples. Definitely not the results people were expecting. But let's credit Pilates for being honest and pushing forth anyway. So Khan Pilates devised a new search method. By June of 1996, he hired Janet Kreese, a dog trainer whose Weimaraner cadaver-hunting dogs had been incredibly successful in tracking down lost people. Like everything involved with Con Polites, Big Dig, Janet Kreese was top talent. Janet Kreese's dog detectives were lowered into the dig site and did eventually become agitated, digging furiously at the western side of the pit. Workmen concentrated their dig in that area, but again, nothing was found. Another setback. After a break, the dig resumed in September 1996. And this time, the team finally found something, a bone. A five-inch bone, which felt like an incredible break in the case. Until forensic analysis revealed that the bone was animal, not human. With that, the re-excavation of the old brick factory ended. So all of this ended up being for nothing. It's pretty anticlimactic. Well, that depends. It was a disappointment in that nothing was found, but it was a success in that nothing was found. It finally eliminates the theory that the Beaumonts were dead and buried under the warehouse. That's one bit of hard certainty in a case full of murky unknowns. What about Gerard Coisset's steadfast belief in the children being buried there? Well, as we've mentioned, the warehouse theory may have been a hoax from the start. Quasset's interpreter had hinted that Quasset secretly believed Jane, Arna, and Grant were buried under an apartment complex outside of Glen Elg. He just didn't want to have the people's homes dug up. So he focused on his initial prediction. And until someone like Con Polites can organize another dig, we'll never really know what was under those apartments. Which means we'll never prove whether the great Quasset was really wrong. Or right. Psychic or not, he certainly knew how to keep an audience engaged. A trait he shared with Con Polites, who seemed to approach the whole affair with a sort of happy-go-lucky, gung-ho optimism, as evidenced in his matter-of-fact, practically relaxed statement to the press at the start of his dig. If we find the children, then we'll solve the mystery. If we don't find them, then I'll be very happy because at least we tried. And the children could be alive and living somewhere else. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue our story. Stan Swain's lingering obsession with the Beaumont case is understandable. The lack of resolution must have infuriated a respected policeman like Swain. Swain was an outlier on the force due to his colorful past. His start as a simple South Australian police force traffic cop took a horrific turn when, in 1952, 27-year-old Swain and his partner, Raymond Moros, pulled over a speeding motorcyclist named James Turner. Turner was carrying a screwdriver, but things went terribly wrong when Swain inquired about it. Swain! Turner stabbed Swain twice above his eye, then attacked his partner. As his vision blurred and blood spilled from his head, Stan shot at Turner, killing him and saving his partner's life. Ah! It was later said that Turner recently, out of a mental ward, might have set out that day with the intent to kill a cop. His attack left Swain with severe headaches and blurred vision for the rest of his life. Once a fellow cop introduced him to hypnotherapy, Swain became an enthused hypnosis advocate, even holding seminars around the city. 
Definitely unusual for a rough-and-tumble 1960s cop. Still, the Turner incident signaled the start of Swain's rise through the police ranks. His leadership skills helped him achieve the rank of detective sergeant. He was even sent on a special assignment to London to study the policing methods of the finest mines at Scotland Yard. So, again, Swain was unorthodox, but undeniably a fantastic cop, which is why it must have been a shock to his colleagues when he quit the force in 1973 at the relatively young age of 48 to become a private detective. Maybe this maverick thought he'd be more effective outside the constraints of traditional justice. He kept an eye on the Beaumont case for three decades until a new twist brought him one step closer to solving the mystery. Susan, you're in a deep, relaxed state. You're free now, free to let the truth come out. We've talked about this before, but I need to know you remember what happened to you. They took me away. They took me away. Just you? No. Us. They took us. Gave us to the devil. The devil himself? No. His people. The ones who served him. Were you Susan then? No. I can't remember who. We've done this before. The answer is there. Who were you? Jane. I was Jane. In 1996, Woman's Day, a magazine, reached out to Swain with a rather amazing claim. Eighteen months prior, a woman, known only in reports as Susan, approached the magazine claiming she was a grown-up amnesiac Jane Beaumont. Susan was based in Canberra, about 750 miles across Australia from Glenelg. She claimed that after witnessing an attempted murder or undergoing childhood sexual abuse, reports differ here, She attended therapy, where a therapist helped her unearth repressed childhood memories of her former life as a Beaumont child. As soon as Swain heard the news, he demanded that Susan's fingerprints be matched against those on Jane Beaumont's old school books. He wanted every bit of evidence, because when the news hit, he knew it would be a bombshell. He was right. When it broke on August 5, 1997, Swain was hounded by press. At 72 years old and limping with a cane, Swain was a shell of himself, especially as far as the media was concerned. Of course, claiming that Jane was taken and brainwashed by a satanic cult didn't help him, but he insisted that they had spent time together and that he believed her, especially considering the physical resemblance and nearly identical birthday she had to Jane. However, there was also a reason for the press to be so suspicious. After all, Jane had just taken out a restraining order against Swain. While she had come forth with the information, apparently something in their dynamic had changed. Well, the whole thing sounds a little wild. Satanic cults, repressed memories unlocked through hypnosis, and the key to a decades-old mystery coming from a reader submission to Woman's Day magazine. Well, stranger things have happened. Still, Swain was retired and seen as a bit of an obsessive has-been, so Assistant Commissioner Rob Lean issued a statement that diffused any excitement. Yes, we're looking into it, and I can assure you, detectives will be speaking to Stan Swain and this woman, and the information will be thoroughly pursued, including fingerprinting and DNA testing. The South Australian police takes any new information in this decades-old tragedy very seriously, Even though several other leads Mr. Swain has investigated in recent years all proved fruitless. Ooh, ouch. Could have been a little more diplomatic. Definitely. But you can imagine that the South Australian police were eager to disprove the idea that the Beaumonts were kidnapped in the service of Satan. Within a week of the news breaking, the police swiftly dismissed Swain's claims, specifically disproving one of his original pieces of evidence. Susan and Jane Beaumont didn't, in fact, share the same birth date. Susan's birthday was off by a year, which they felt eliminated the need for DNA and fingerprint testing. How frustrating for Swain. The first time DNA testing was put into play on the Beaumont case, it revealed that the Dandenog letters were a hoax. 
And this time, police refused to use these readily available methods to prove Swain right. There was a brief hiccup in the investigation when it was revealed that Susan's birth certificate was only issued when she was about 10 years old in 1966. Which could mean that whoever kidnapped Jane forged a new set of identity papers for her. But sadly for Swain, Susan's parents explained away the issue in such a manner that the police didn't feel the need to look further into her past. Where they looked instead was Susan's present. They discovered her restraining order against Swain was one of several that she had taken out against different people, including the therapist who'd helped her realize she was Jane Beaumont. There were reports that at a court hearing for one of these restraining orders, Susan had locked herself in a courtroom and caused property damage. I think we can agree that Susan's story is far-fetched, but it seems the police went for the tried-and-true route of invalidating her by making her out to be dangerous and mentally ill. Susan later retracted her statement that she was Jane Beaumont, claiming her therapist had suggested and implanted that belief. It was one of the reasons she took out that restraining order against them. Susan's therapist may have been involved in a similar investigation in 1988, where they were accused of implanting a patient with the belief that they were involved in murdering a teenage girl. This could all be the result of a twisted therapist's sick game. But if the therapist wasn't at fault, we have to wonder, did mental illness cause Susan to believe she was Jane Beaumont? Or did a traumatic cult kidnapping and identity switch cause a grown-up Jane to be unable to embrace her true self? Mm, Likely the first. As we'll see later, Susan wasn't the only person with mental health issues to tie themselves to the Beaumont's tail for a juicy round of gossip. And while that gossip might be entertainingly absurd, it's important to remember that during this new wave of scandal, Jim and Nancy were alive and barely in their 70s. They kept out of the spotlight, but every so often the greatest tragedy of their lives came back into the news again, and they had to deal with it. Assistant Commissioner Lean, do Jim and Nancy Beaumont have any new information to add that could help them? Protocol dictates that I have to inform them, but do you know what it's like to have to call these poor people up to discuss satanic cults and gossip rags? I don't know. You can't imagine how they must feel. Every day for 31 years they have hoped. They've waited for news that their children are alive. Once again, their hopes have been raised and shattered. No more questions. Just as sad as how this incident may have been the final nail in the coffin of Stanley Swain's once illustrious career. Mr. Swain, couldn't you just admit that you got it wrong? That you just keep reaching into the dark for any supposed clue that comes your way? Well, maybe I have to. There's never been an official body to examine all facts, like a royal commission situation. Which is interesting to consider. Swain complained about the fact that there was no comprehensive method in place to contextualize each fragment of evidence. It seems like Swain was the only one trying to keep track of the entire case. Perhaps if he'd stayed on the force instead of leaving to be a private detective. Or maybe if he'd taken a more measured approach to each new wild claim, or perhaps even linked up with a benefactor like Con Polites. He wouldn't have ended a long and illustrious career by being described by the Sunday Age paper as a bored old man. Swain's final words on the subject seemed to reveal less of a bored man and more of a broken one. (sighs) It haunts me. I'm disappointed. That's it. What more can I say? Swain's misguided yet heroic efforts should be remembered, while Jim and Nancy retreated into anonymity after decades of lost hope. Stanley Swain never stopped investigating until he died in 2002. If the Susan situation broke Swain, it's perhaps for the best that he wasn't around in 2012 when another long-lost Beaumont child emerged in Kentucky. David... David, I have to tell you something before I go. It's about your dad. Save your strength. I know my dad would want you to hold on. He's not your father, David. He took you from the hospital when you were four. What? I don't know why or how, but he's not your father. You're someone else's baby. In 2004, David Estes of Irvine, Kentucky, learned a shocking truth from his father's dying friend. His parents had allegedly kidnapped him as a child and changed his name. 
This incredible claim felt like the answer to David's lifelong identity issues. His earliest memory was waking up in the hospital at age four with a broken hip and a broken back. He was picked up by his parents, but didn't recognize them. As David grew up, he felt different from his siblings, and his mother's alleged abusive behavior exacerbated his isolation to the point where he had his blood type compared to his mother's in 2004. The doctor told him there was no way his mother was his biological mother. His identity quest became more urgent, so he looked up his birth date in the DOE network, a missing persons database. He found a picture of Grant Beaumont. In David's eyes, a near-identical match for childhood pictures of himself. David contacted Kentucky police and the FBI, who told him to contact the South Australia police. He claimed his mother's multiple social security numbers and shady business dealings could point the way to his possible kidnapping as a child. Though how they got him from Australia to Kentucky is unknown. When David finally got in touch with the Australian police, he felt they weren't taking him seriously. This, despite claims from the police that David hadn't provided enough evidence and refused to shell out for a $10,000 DNA test. On the other hand, the current detective in charge of the Beaumont case, David Swan, stated they received at least six tips a month about the Beaumont children. David's story was just another one in a pile of increasingly absurd claims. David's frustration boiled over in a statement where he claims his only reason for doing this is to provide some peace and comfort to Jim and Nancy. When you see your own face and it says above it, missing child, it really takes its toll on you at times. You don't know whether to cry, scream, holler, or whatever. Jim and Nancy are 80 years old. If it turns out to be true, I may have three or four years left with them. I want to give it everything I've got. And even if nothing comes of it, I just want them to know I did try to find them. It sounds like he really believes he could be Grant Beaumont. Like you said, stranger things have happened. But I don't know what to make of this. For what it's worth, David Estes' mother, or adoptive mother, spoke to Kentucky police and painted a slightly different picture of her son. Oh, he's Australian now. Well, that's a new twist. You know, David once tried to get on Oprah because he was convinced he was Elvis Presley's long-lost love child. So I can't wait to see who he's going to be next. Can't wait. Ah, well, I think that's enough about David Estes then. Moving on. It's been over 50 years since Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont disappeared off the beach on that hot summer day in 1966. No suspect has ever been formally charged, and hard evidence has been difficult to come by. But the tragic tale has evolved to include celebrity psychics, millionaires with construction crews, satanic cults, mistaken identities, post office hoaxes, and an ever-present host of conspiracy theories. And it has forever changed the way Australians parent their children. Now, is it possible to pin down a suspect? Perhaps one of the killers we investigated? All of them are twisted enough to do it, but there never seemed to be enough evidence to firmly link them. A possible exception might be Bevan von Einem. He's definitely the most memorable, and rumors persist that he claimed responsibility for taking the Beaumonts. However, that's apparently a rather common claim among Australian killers who were active in the 1960s and 70s. So, what about the theory that the Beaumonts were buried near their home? Conpolites' dig in the 1990s conclusively tells us that they weren't underneath the warehouse floor. Now, as to Gerard Coisset's possible secret theory that they were actually buried under a nearby apartment complex, Coisset is long gone and no one's pushing for another dig. So it could be that the Beaumonts are still alive. Well, if so, the Beaumont children would now be in their 50s and 60s, possibly unaware of their tragic past. Though, unless it involves some heavy brainwashing or satanic involvement, as Susan from Canberra claimed, it's doubtful that Jane and Arna, who were 10 and 7 when they were taken, wouldn't remember some elements of their childhood. It's possible that Grant was young enough to have blocked out his first life, but even so, I doubt he's David Estes from Kentucky. Then how do you explain these people emerging with these incredibly visceral connections to the case? I think if you're a troubled person with identity issues, it can be powerful to believe that you belong somewhere else. That the mystery of yourself is a one that others care about solving. 
Still, it is tempting to wonder what would have happened if the stars had aligned, if Con Polites, who had money and resources, had ever linked up with Stan Swain, who had the knowledge and willpower to believe he could solve the case. And if Jim and Nancy Beaumont had taken a more active public role, instead of retreating into the relief of anonymity. And what about Jim and Nancy? We've avoided discussing them as suspects. It's a horrifying thought, if true, but it's possible. Yes, but for what it's worth, Jim and Nancy Beaumont were never investigated as suspects. They cooperated with the police every step of the way, and even lived in their Somerton Park home for years after their disappearance. I'm sure the empty bedrooms were a constant haunting reminder of what they had lost, but Jim and Nancy wanted to stay as long as possible. They couldn't bear the thought of the children coming home to find their parents had moved on. But the years passed, and things changed. Jim and Nancy eventually divorced and sold their home, moving away from the Somerton Park neighborhood that had been the site of their family story, from its idyllic beginning to its tragic end. They're still alive and in their 90s, but have long since given up public commentary about their missing children. Still, their new addresses are on file with the South Australia Police, should they ever need to be contacted with new information about their children. It's sad to say, but it's unlikely that the Beaumont children are alive today. And time is also running out on locating their abductor, who would be at least in his 70s by now, if not older. But while the persistent fascination with the case leaves the Australian police with more anonymous, absurd tips than they'd like, it occasionally leads to concrete leads 50 years later. Like the one that just broke in 2017. Andrew McIntyre had a seemingly perfect childhood in the 1960s, where he spent a lot of time at Glenelg Beach. One of his favorite pastimes was diving for lost items, or perhaps some buried treasure, along the coast with his friends. Andrew dove under the careful supervision of his father, Alan McIntyre, and his friend, Anthony Allen Monroe. Andrew and his friends called themselves the Salvage and Exploration Club and kept a diary of their exploits. That diary was lost for decades. Until now. And the entry from January 26th, 1966 is chilling. According to the diary, that was a day Andrew was meant to go diving with his father and Monroe on Glenelg Beach, but he was later told to stay home. Later on, the diary claims that Andrew saw his father and Monroe return home dejected. Their car was full of blood and sand, and his father, Alan, was reportedly clutching his head in his hands, muttering curse words to himself. That's a bombshell claim. Yes, it is. Now, years earlier in 2007, Andrew McIntyre's sister, Ruth, came forward with the allegation that her father's shirt was covered in blood and that there were three bodies in the trunk on the day of the disappearance. But police investigated those claims then and found no evidence to tie her father, Alan McIntyre, to the case. And as for Anthony Allen Monroe, the elder McIntyre's friend, his record isn't so clean. He's a convicted child molester who was jailed for seven months in 1990 for sexually assaulting an 11-year-old boy. After his release, he fled to Siem Reap, Cambodia. There, he became known for running a ladyboy bar called The Station that features a cross-dressing stage show. However, Monroe is also known for contributing to several charity organizations. In addition, his bar was designed to be a sanctuary for gay Cambodians. Closeted until his 70s, Monroe claimed to want to pave the way for acceptance. But Monroe is also currently under investigation for allegedly sexually abusing two young Cambodian boys. Monroe recently returned to Australia to face trial for his crimes. According to Keo Paiseth, the interim manager at the station bar, <laughs> He's realized he's made some mistakes. He told me on a few occasions that he didn't want to feel regret again and again. That's why he tried to clean himself to make himself better. He made mistakes 30, 40 years ago. Whether those mistakes include the Beaumonts is unknown. It's possible that, like Alan McIntyre, investigations into his involvement will lead to nowhere. And, like so many other suspects, Monroe would only have been in his early 20s in 1966, which takes him out of the suspected mid-30s age range. But take one look at the picture of Monroe back then, sandy-haired and slender on the beach, with only a charming smile and a blue bathing suit on. And it's far too easy to imagine him as our mystery man.
Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll investigate the case of Thomas Ince. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Unsolved Murders is written by Amin Osman and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Kenna McEnroe, Manu Narayan, Sammy Nye, and Steve Pinto. 